want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel this morning. It's great to uh, be back from uh, Duluth where we had a wonderful conference uh, last week and we actually got back last Sunday night so I feel like it's been a while that I've been back but this is the first Sunday uh, since we've uh, been back and so I wanted to just take a moment to give you a quick update for those of you that are at our midweek service or if you've watched that video uh, from our midweek service you've heard a little bit of the update but a wonderful time of ministry, great to be out there uh, and great to brag about Plum Creek Chapel on the road as we uh, uh, did a lot of that, talking about what a great uh, church it is. And anybody that uh, is ever visiting uh, Denver, we want to encourage you to come by uh, Plum Creek Chapel. But if you haven't had a chance to watch the two messages from that conference, they're both posted online at notbyworks.org. The first one was Wednesday night last week, not this past Wednesday, but while I was in Duluth. That was at the pastor's conference called Beware of False Prophets from 2 Peter 2. And then at the uh, bigger conference on Friday night, uh, the whole conference was dedicated to the book of Revelation, which of course we've been camped out in Revelation for quite a while here on Sunday mornings. Uh, but my assigned passage was Revelation 14 to 16, so I shared a message entitled One Second Before the Second Coming. And that message is also up and posted at notbyworks.org, so I encourage you to watch uh, both of those. And then want to remind you again that uh, we are going through the book What Lies Ahead. We've got more copies on the table at the back. If you're joining us remotely, either live stream or watching the video, you can go to notbyworks.org uh, to pick up that book. And then don't forget we're now two weeks in or two sessions in, I should say, to our new midweek uh, series called How to Read and Understand the Bible. And we look forward to the next one of those this coming uh, Wednesday. And uh, I started out last Wednesday uh, introducing this, the message that night with a little exercise where we looked at a passage of Scripture and tried to kind of understand it in context as a test case, if you will. And we're going to do that again this Wednesday, so I hope you'll come back uh, for that on Wednesday nights or join us by live stream. Uh, but this morning we continue with our look at the judgments of the tribulation. This is our ninth week in uh, the tribulation. And... Uh, that doesn't mean we've had nine weeks of tribulation, but nine weeks of studying the tribulation is what I'm trying to say. And uh, it's part 34 overall of our um, study of what lies ahead. And I want to introduce the uh, subject matter this morning as we're going to get into the trumpet judgments. And for those of you that uh, maybe are not as well versed in uh, the events of the tribulation, uh, the Bible teaches that during that seven-year period, let me put the chart on the screen, it's in, highlighted in yellow here, during this future seven-year period, which both Jesus and Daniel talk about uh, extensively, it's also referenced many times throughout the Old Testament prophets, and the bulk of the book of Revelation is dedicated to this seven-year period. During that time, uh, we will see a climactic battle between God and Satan, as Satan is desperately trying to uh, take over the world and hang on to power. And of course, God is pouring out His long prophesied judgments on uh, the world. And those judgments are portrayed in the book of Revelation, as we've been seeing, in the form of seals, seven seals that are opened by Jesus Christ Himself, and which, when opened, contain announcements of God's wrath and judgments that are being poured out on the sinfulness of the world. Uh, then there are seven more judgments that are announced by 
uh, the blowing of trumpets, the sounding of trumpets, and that's what we're going to look at today. I don't think we'll get through all of the trumpets because there's a lot to cover there, but we'll get as far as we can today and then pick up again next uh, time. And then there are, at the very end of the tribulation, seven more judgments uh, that are portrayed as being uh, evidenced in bowls or vials that are bubbling over with God's wrath. And by the way, the seven bowls are what I covered in Duluth uh, in the Revelation chapter 16. So when we get there, uh, we'll cover that again. Uh, but if you want to jump ahead and kind of see what the bowl judgments are all about, you can watch that, uh, that video. So if we look at an overview of the book of Revelation... And uh, by the way, I update all of my charts, but I've been updating this one as I've been going through this material again, just making minor tweaks, no major changes in the flow. But as I study it, I sometimes find there's better ways to say it. So uh, this may look slightly different than one of the ones in our latest uh, chart book or things like that. But you can always email me and I'll send you the up-to-the-minute uh, version. Uh, but uh, in this case, we're looking, as you can see there, kind of in the middle of the screen at the trumpet judgments, which I believe uh, begin at the second half of the tribulation. So the seal judgments, which we previously looked at, take us right up to the midpoint. And at the midpoint is when we see the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about and Daniel talked about. That's a term that refers to the Antichrist, who's the ruler of the world at this point. Uh, setting himself up as God taking the throne in the temple and demanding that the entire world worship him. And uh, so that's, that delineates the midpoint, three and a half years into this seven-year period. And just after that is when we see the intensification of these judgments, and, uh, and, and it starts out with uh, the trumpets. So the seal judgments, just by way of review... Uh, looked like this. We had the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first four seals involved the introduction of the Antichrist, uh, the Antichrist taking peace from the earth, so war, uh, famine, death of one quarter of the population. We talked about the impact, uh, uh, what that would be on the, on the world in terms of the reduction of the world's population. And then chapter 5 is the prayers for revenge by the early tribulation martyrs. And what this is talking about is the later judgments, including the trumpet and bowl judgments, are in answer to this prayer of the uh, martyrs as they begin to cry out. Everything is, is really escalating and, and intensifying and gaining speed, and it just gets worse and worse and more powerful and profound until the very end when Christ comes back at the Battle of Armageddon. And then we saw the sixth seal was earthquakes and other cosmic disturbances. And then if you recall, the seventh seal of God's judgment, when it was opened, it announced seven more judgments uh, that are in the form of trumpets sounding. And so again, if we go back here to uh, our chart, you can see the trumpets there beginning in the second half, uh, primarily listed in chapters 8 and 9. And then there's a little uh, excursus or a little interlude. Everything in black writing on the screen uh, in, uh, indicates these interludes or supplemental information that is uh, kind of giving us more details about what's going on both in heaven and on earth during this seven-year period. And uh, the sixth trumpet, as we shall see, uh, it, it takes us through chapter 9. And then we have uh, chapter 10. <coughs> where John receives this vision of the little book, which announces 
even more judgments. And uh, he's told to eat the book, if you remember, uh, and, uh, and not tell anybody about it. And so one of the interesting things people often forget is that there are actually going to be more judgments during the tribulation period that we don't know anything about. Because John was told not to tell anybody about the revelation that was in that, that little scroll or little book. And that's what chapter 10 tells us. And then chapter 11 gives us more information about the two witnesses. Um, we may come back to that at some point. I don't want to get into that too much this morning. Uh, most people assume it's probably Elijah and Moses. That's my view, but we really don't know exactly uh, who it is. Elijah makes a lot of sense because the Old Testament promised that Elijah would come back before Christ, so that would fulfill that promise. Um, some people have thought it might be Enoch and Elijah because both of them disappeared without death, at least as far as the biblical record is concerned. But I think it's more likely a Moses and Elijah. But in any event, I take it that they begin, and this is where some scholars disagree, so I wouldn't you know, die on this hill by any stretch, but they begin their ministry at the beginning of the tribulation. That's why I've kind of got it you know, going throughout the whole section there. But their death, which is what we read about in chapter 11, and their resurrection is at the midpoint which, uh, again, everything is sort of intensifying and reaching a climax. And then we see the references to, well, then we get to the, the seventh trumpet, also in chapter 11, and then we'll come back to these other interludes or supplemental information later. So if you go back to our primary chart, um, I believe the trumpets are basically just after the abomination of desolation is when the first trumpet sounds. Now, some... Uh, scholars put the trumpets in the first half, and uh, you know we can't be dogmatic about it. I think it makes the most sense based on the description and the flow and the order of events that are happening in the book of Revelation to see them after the abomination of desolation. Uh, but in any event, regardless of where they are within that seven-year period, it's very important to recognize that the seal trumpet and bold judgments are sequential not concurrent and actually one of the trumpet judgments that when we get down to the end of the trumpet judgments is going to show that emphatically and, and yet there are still commentators out there that suggest these are just all happening all at the same time and I think we can clearly rule that out based on the text so let's start with the first trumpet the first trumpet judgment is one-third of the earth is burned up so if we look at verse 7, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So this uh, first trumpet blast signals the beginning of a judgment that involves hail, fire, which could very well be lightning. Um, lightning is a, a you know, fire component. And uh, blood, probably indicating bloodshed. Um, but this resulted in the destruction of one-third of the earth. Uh, one-third of its trees and all of its grass. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just a powerful judgment that again indicates we've got to be getting near the end because you're, you're starting to see the type of devastation from which the earth is not going to be able to come back if something doesn't intervene. And of course, we do see an intervention, that is the return of Christ at the end of the seven years to uh, set up His kingdom. 
and begin to restore things. And it won't take long for even with all the devastation uh, that the earth endures during this seven-year period for the world to recover because, remember, once Christ takes the throne, He will rule in perfect justice. So there will be no more um, unchecked evil, no inequities and unfairness, no tragedies. There will still eventually be sin once people that get into the kingdom have children and those babies are born and grow up and every human being is always born dead in their trespasses and sins because we're all sons of Adam. Um, and, and those people will eventually, some of them will believe the gospel, some of them won't. The ones who don't could be perpetrating sinful acts and evil acts. But the difference will be it will be dealt with swiftly and justly and we won't have the level of uh, depravity and deception that we have in the present age where Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness, the god of this age, and so forth and so on. So for, for that reason, things will bounce back quickly. And also don't forget at the beginning of the uh, kingdom when Christ uh, comes back, at that moment there are no unbelievers on earth. And so it's going to take uh, quite a while for people to be born and then for them to grow up and to begin to perpetrate evil. So we could probably do some quick math. Um, hypothetically, let's say the first children are born a year into the kingdom, and then I don't know how long it takes for them to perpetrate real evil. I mean, in our experience, about two years. But, uh, I mean, for the kind of evil that we see globally, we're probably dealing with these have to be at least teenagers. So we're probably looking at 13, 14, 15 years before we begin to see a real presence of evil on the earth during that tribulation or during that millennial phase. So that get, that means that we've got the king of kings, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God's ruling on the throne in the person of his eternal son Jesus Christ who's going to make sure that justice is always served and we've got roughly let's say 10 to 15 years before there's really any prevalent evil. And so a lot of recovery and restoration can take place during that time. Uh, and then, of course, the millennium lasts a thousand years. If you go back to this chart, the, the first, uh, you know, Christ comes back. Then uh, we know there's a 75-day period according to Daniel 12. And then the first thousand years, which we call the millennium that you see there in purple, is the beginning of the Messianic kingdom, but it's on the old earth. And this is the period of time we're talking about at this moment. And so, obviously, that's a long time. And by the time the thousand years is up, the earth and the scars and the devastation left by the tribulation period that we're talking about will long be gone. I mean, a thousand years is a long time. I mean, think about what's happened in the last thousand years from our perspective. There's been a lot of devastation, the devastation of, you know, World War II and, you know, World War I and all the other empires and, and so forth. So... Uh, so anyway, back to the first trumpet. This is, uh, uh, you know, a devastating judgment where one third of the earth is burned up. And then we see the second trumpet sound, and one third of the sea turns to blood. One third of the sea turns to blood. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became uh, blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Um, if that were if the rapture were to happen today, um, 
it would probably be much easier to fulfill this trumpet judgment since currently there are thousands of ships all clustered together right off the coast of North America. But uh, in any event, a third of them will be destroyed. Um, notice, and you'll see this a lot throughout Revelation, you know, hundreds of times, but in these trumpet judgment, notice the word like. He says something like a great mountain. Uh, one of the things that we're going to discuss in our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible is called figuring out the figurative. A lot of people mistakenly think that the Bible is this mystical book and you never know whether it's literal or figurative, um, but you absolutely do. In any language, it's very clear when a figure of speech is being employed and when it is not. And when there's no uh, clues that it's a figure of speech, you should take it literally. Um, you know, uh, when, the perfect when the plain sense makes perfect sense, seek no other sense. That's, that's kind of a general rule of thumb. Uh, when it uses a simile here, the word like or as, clearly we're dealing with a, uh, a figure of speech. So this wasn't a great mountain. John specifically tells us it looked like a great mountain that was thrown into the sea. Um, but in any event, when it did, it destroyed uh, one-third of the living creature's uh, in the sea, and the third of the ships in the sea uh, perished. Now, the result of this, by the way, was that the one-third of the oceans became blood. Now, what do you notice is not in that phrase when it says a third of the sea became blood. It does not say became like blood. So this is to be taken literally, uh, in my estimation. And uh, I know that may be hard to imagine, but remember the same thing happened in Pharaoh's day. So God is a powerful God. God throughout human history has done amazing things. If He can flood the entire globe with water, if He can have the sun stand still for a day, if He can speak the world into existence out of nothing, uh, if He can part the waters of the Red Sea, He can do this. So there's no reason, even though it sounds rather fantastical, to, assume, to think that this is anything other than literal because the text indicates that. And then we see the third judgment, which is one-third of the fresh water is poisoned. So having targeted the oceans, we now see the fresh water being poisoned. The third angel sounded, verses 10 and 11, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. Wormwood. Now we'll come back to that in a second. But notice the result. A third of the waters became wormwood, literally bitter. And many men died from the water because it was made uh, bitter. So notice it says a great star fell from heaven. Uh, this is the Greek word aster, where we get the word asteroid in English. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. And it most likely refers to some type of meteor or comet or something coming from heaven crashing in uh, to the earth, and it was on fire. Notice he says it was like a torch. Again, a, a figure of speech. He's picturing something burning, and oh, that looks like a torch, but it was clearly uh, burning. Uh, we know from ancient Greek literature that people often referred to meteors as uh, a, a torch, a lampas is the Greek word where we get the word lamp. Um, but the result of this, whatever it was, uh, asteroid, 
poisoned a third of the rivers and the streams, and many people died from drinking uh, the poisoned water. Now, notice it's called wormwood. Uh, a lot of people try to take this you know, figuratively or symbolically. There's no reason to do that. Um, its description is, uses a figure of speech, but it was a great star that fell uh, from heaven. Um, and uh, so this is another awesome judgment resulting in a great loss of life. Now I want to talk about this idea of wormwood for a second. And this is just pure speculation, but it's interesting to me as I try to see the possible setting of the stage for future end times events. So I'm estimating, uh, obviously this chart is not drawn to scale, uh, particularly the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments that I overlay at the bottom there are not drawn to scale because I believe the bowl judgments uh, happen at the very end of the tribulation, probably in the last 48 hours, which we'll see when we get there. Um, but if I had to try to pinpoint it on my uh, chart, such as it is, I would put the third trumpet uh, right about there, okay, where you see the arrow pointing. And why is that important? Well, I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but trust me, if you haven't heard about it, you'll be hearing about it nonstop in about five years. Uh, but there is an asteroid that is called Apophis. It's official name. They always give it a, a numeric name, and then they give it a, or not always, but sometimes if it's a significant uh, asteroid, they give it a, a verbal name. Uh, but this is officially known as asteroid 99942 Apophis, and it's named after the Egyptian god of chaos. No idea why NASA chose to name it that, but uh, the, the Apophis was a demon serpent of darkness whom Ra, the Egyptian sun god, destroys every morning at, at dawn. But Apophis is 1,100 feet wide, which is, by the way, four football fields, four football fields in length. For you Denver Broncos fans, a football field is where some teams play football. But uh, anyway, go Cowboys. Play the, play the Patriots today at uh, 225, and they're one of the best teams in the league this year. We'll see if it lasts. But it's 1,100 feet wide, traveling at 49,904 miles per hour. Now, the headlines about Apophis are everywhere. Here's something from the NASA JPL site, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Scientists planning now for an asteroid flyby a decade away. Here's an article from India today. Asteroid Apophis inbound. Will it hit Earth in 2029 or let us live? Here's International Business Times. Killer asteroid Apophis. Devastating impact on Earth shown in a video simulation. Uh, here's ScienceX uh, magazine. Fizz.org. Impact threat from asteroid Apophis cannot be ruled out. In fact, there are even multiple sites set up to track Apophis live. If you just go home and use your search engine DuckDuckGo and type in where is Apophis, you'll come up with some options where it will let you watch it. Now we found out about this because of NEOWISE, that's a NASA uh, a program, it stands for Near Earth Objects Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, called NEOWISE, just the acronym, which is a NASA infrared wavelength astronomical space telescope that's designed to track objects in space that might come near or even impact the Earth. So uh, NASA scientists and space scientists from other countries are not in agreement as to whether or not this asteroid will hit the Earth. Some very highly credentialed scientists with high-level posts within NASA are alleging a cover-up. Uh, and they think that it is, uh, you know, a dead target for the 
uh, globe, but all agree that at the very least it will come so close that it will collide with some satellites that are orbiting the Earth. So you see that uh, picture there uh, showing satellites orbiting the Earth, and the yellow line is Apophis by some of the most conservative uh, tracking estimates. So what does all this have to do with the trumpet judgments and signs of the times and so forth? Well, if we go back to the third trumpet, which is an asteroid hitting the earth and causing incredible uh, devastation, if we assume that my timetable is right here on the placement of the trumpet judgments, and by the way, if, I, if I, it happens in the first half, as a few scholars suggest, then it's even closer. But if we assume this, and this is very speculative, a very speculative if, um, but if it does hit the earth in 2029, so let's assume that Opophis is the fulf uh, fulfillment of the third trumpet, then that arrow basically represents 2029. So then you got to go back, let's just estimate four years to go to the beginning of the tribulation. Now you're at 2025 for the beginning of the tribulation. And then we have to go back from that a few more months, possibly years, we don't know, uh, to the rapture. Yeah. That's what you were looking forward to? Amen. Okay. You are dismissed. So uh, I guess it would be this way. Sorry. Okay. Um, so, yeah, no, that'll, that would be putting us at, so 2025, so, you know, sometime 2023-ish. So, again, totally speculative. Apophis may not even hit the earth. It may be a near miss. Uh, you know, who knows? It could burn up. I mean, I'm not a, a scientist or certainly not a NASA scientist. So, but it's just interesting when I see these things because we know that the stage is being set. And uh, it's, we know that in the tribulation period, there's going to be an asteroid that hits the earth. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, intriguing uh, to think about. It also does not escape my notice that if it does hit in 2029, which then puts us at the start of the tribulation at around 2025, for those of you that were uh, participating in our eight-part series on what in the world is going on, we spent one whole session talking about the Luciferian timetable and what they are saying in their own words is the timetable to usher in the New World Order. And what year did we find prevalent throughout all of their writings? 2025, remember? Going back 50 years to Helena Blavatsky and others and, uh, uh, that, uh, of her disciples that were writing and mentioning 2025 in the early 20th century. <laughs> so again, and they were admitted to, being ch to channeling demons when they were writing some of that uh, stuff. So again, interesting uh, food for thought. Not sure that there's that we can. I know we can't be dogmatic about it, but that's what the third trumpet judgment is all about. And notice that many died from uh, the water because it was made bitter. Now, some of the scientists that are tracking Apophis have impact. You know that suggest it's going to impact the Earth. Have this uh, death toll reaching into the billions. Just FYI. The nature, no matter where it hits, the nature of the tsunamis and, and devastation could see the deaths of billions of people. So then we get to the fourth trumpet judgment, which is the one-third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. We see this in verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day 
did not shine, and likewise the night. So this time the trumpet blast announced a judgment and devastation in the heavenlies, not on earth. Darkness is a common symbol of judgment in the Old Testament, and the day of the Lord was called a time of darkness. If you remember, going way back 30-some-odd, no, I guess it was with the beginning of our study of the tribulation, so nine sessions ago we talked about biblical uh, descriptions or terms for the tribulation period, and one of them was a time of darkness. Um, so this could be the fulfillment of that. Uh, we also know that at the end of the tribulation, we're going to see total darkness, and this is sort of setting the stage for that. Um, so this is really a warning of more judgments to come. God's going to cut off part of the light from the sun, moon, and stars. Um, and uh, it, it, the text seems to imply that God is going to somehow reduce the intensity of these, which is what leads to the fact that we don't get as much light uh, here on earth. Uh, obviously, that kind of a reduction in light is going to have consequences as it relates to temperature. So it could be uh, dealing with that, cold, cold temperatures during that time. Which given, you know, by this point, Satan and his army uh, and legion of demons and his earthly army going around hunting down Christians to behead them and hunting down, um, you know, the uh, people that were... The, 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 the mark of the beast hesitant, as, as we call them. Uh, by the way, if anybody ever asks, I am not vaccine hesitant, okay? It's a non-starter. I will die before I take the vaccine. There's no hesitancy here whatsoever. So I just want to clarify. They're calling it vaccine hesitancy, but for me it's vaccine non-starter, okay? But uh, given all that's going to be going on during the tribulation period and that they're going to be hunting people down and there's going to be all these other judgments that we've already seen in the seals on the earlier trumpets, uh, the fact that we see darkness uh, is just going to compound things. It's just going to really make it very, very uh, difficult. And then we see a transitional uh, verse here in verse 30. Oh, yes, question. So the question is, and I apologize for those that are live streaming, uh, the nature of our setup is we don't have a good way to record the question, so I'll always try to repeat them. But the question is, is there any significance to the, the number a third? Not that I can tell. Um, we've seen earlier a quarter of the earth in the sealed judgments, and uh, we're going to you know, see a third now. And so I think it's just incremental judgments of God. So... Um, but this uh, little transitional phrase here, or verse here, is indicated by the opening, And I looked, which always signals a new scene throughout the book of Revelation. And um, he said, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice. Now, that word angel, every other modern English translation has the word eagle, or in some cases vulture. The only version that has angel is the King James or the Textus Receptus. And for some reason, the New King James, which as you know is what I teach from, follows the Textus Receptus. But it's really not an angel. It's, it's the word uh, atos, and it's uh, where we get our word eagle from, and it's translated eagle in most uh, versions. It's used in Matthew 24, 28, when Jesus says where the... Uh, 
eagles are gathered, you know, there am I, and so forth, uh, in Luke 17, 37, similar uh, passage, different context. So we see uh, that, that there's this eagle that's flying through the sky, warning the earth to beware of the last three trumpet judgments. Now again, no figure of speech here. This is an animal speaking. We've seen this before uh, in Scripture. Can you think of any examples of animals speaking? Balaam's donkey, that's right. Uh, what about way back at the beginning in the garden? A serpent, that's right. So it's, this is nothing new. Of course, the serpent we know was Satan himself. Demons can shapeshift and um, make themselves appear in the form of animals. Um, but uh, So these eagles or, virtu- or, 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 or vultures are birds of prey. And as we approach the end of the tribulation, uh, it's a very appropriate uh, animal to herald God's judgments to come. Um, so the eagle announces the last three trumpet judgments, which are also called woes. So, woe, woe, woe. These are especially bad judgments because they have people as the objects or their, or their targets, if you will. Uh, in Scripture, we've seen examples of double woes. But a triple woe is very significant and announces an even worse calamity. And the objects of these judgments are people dwelling on earth. And again, this is uh, partly in response to the tribulation martyrs that we read about back in chapter 6. So let's look at the first woe, which is the fifth trumpet judgment. A huge swarm of locusts invades the earth. So here we go. The fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So we're dealing with a literal bottomless pit and a literal smoke, but it's described like or as the smoke from a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened, literally, because of the smoke of the pit. So the fifth trumpet sets the tone for the last three trumpets through its specificity. The sections are much longer and we get a lot more detail about these final judgments. Uh, We get considerable explanation uh, showing that this is an important step in, in the progress of Revelation leading up to the Battle of Armageddon. Now this star, if you look closely, and one of the rules of hermeneutics or Bible study methods is proper observation is a he. Notice, I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key, and he opened the bottomless pit. This is a reference to Satan. Um, Satan was cast out of heaven at the beginning of the second half of the tribulation. <clears throat> we don't find out about this till we get to chapter 12 in one of those little excursus, excurses, if you will. But Satan, up until then, and currently today, has access to heaven. He can approach God any time like he did with Job. Uh, and, but once we get to the midpoint and after the Antichrist, who I believe Satan is indwelling at that point, sets himself up as God, God restricts Satan totally to the earth. He's confined to the earth. And uh, so he's given the key to the abyss, that phrase bottomless pit there. In Greek is abusos, where we get the word abyss. In fact, many translations translate it abyss, but it's a reference to the bottomless pit. 
And the abyss is the home of some demons that have been temporarily imprisoned or confined and that will now be let out. That's what this judgment uh, is all about. Uh, We also know that when we get to Revelation chapter 20, during that thousand-year millennium, Satan himself, the prince of demons, remember he's a demon, a fallen angel, He's going to be imprisoned in the abyss, the bottomless pit, for a thousand years. And then he will be uh, let out. So here we see that this star, Satan, uses his key to allow the demons that had been in the abyss to come out and afflict the earth. Uh, Visually, this event is depicted as a great smoke darkening the sky. Can you imagine just how terrifying it would be to be alive during that day? and see the sky filled with more demons. Um, What a horrific sight. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. These are clearly uh, uh, demons that are called locusts because the abyss is the home of demons, not locusts. Locusts are biological beings that could not uh, survive in the center of the earth. Uh, And we know from other passages comparing Scripture with Scripture that the abyss is the domain of some demons. So, confined demons. And so these demons come out and they are harmless to natural vegetation and trees, but they sting people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, who who is it that has the seal of God on their foreheads? Do you remember? The 144,000. And so... Uh, They are contrasted with the unbelievers during the tribulation that take the mark of the beast on their forehead, but the the 144,000 Jewish evangelists have the mark of God on on their uh, forehead. So it's interesting to uh, take a moment. We've got about five minutes left. I want to take a moment and just review the biblical doctrine of angels. We went through this last almost a year ago now as part of the Spirit of the Antichrist series to kind of explain uh, the the, the role of demons in the Luciferian conspiracy. But if we chart these out, obviously angels, contrary to popular myth, are not the souls of deceased people. That's a terrible lie that has been propagated through Hollywood and other things. But angels are created beings, and they fall into one of two categories, unfallen angels and fallen angels. Uh, or demons. Remember, Jesus said that at his return, uh, he's going to cast uh, the beast and the false pro- or the unbelievers. Actually, in Matthew 25 is what he's talking talking about the goats. He calls them. Remember, he says, "I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats." And the goats, he's going to say, "Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels, which are uh, the demons." And so the unfallen angels are the good guys, what we commonly just call angels. The fallen angels are the bad guys, which we commonly call demons. And the scripture refers to as demons. But now among the fallen angels, there are one-third and two-thirds remained unfallen. Remember, angels do not propagate. They were created beings. They're static in number. There's no, they have not increased or decreased. But we do know that uh, one-third of them followed Satan as he was judged and cast out of heaven. And so today, this is still the case. However, of the one-third who fell, some of them are loose and active, as the Bible tells us in Ephesians, uh, the, the, the different principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. 
But some of them were imprisoned. And where are they imprisoned? In the abyss. Remember in the story of Jesus with the uh, uh, two demoniacs um, uh, at the Gadarenes. Uh, and Luke and Mark, by the way, tell the same account but only mention one demon-possessed man. But it's the same event. They were just giving a different perspective on it. Uh, kind of two different eyewitness accounts, if you will. Uh, but uh, when he was going to cast them out, uh, they begged him, according to Luke 8.31, this is the demons, Legion was their name, uh, that he would not command them to go into the abyss. They wanted to still have their freedom so they could still do Satan's bidding and still wreak havoc in this sin-stricken, fallen world that's under the curse of sin. Uh, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So we know that some were imprisoned, but we also know that those in the abyss were temporarily imprisoned because as we just read here in Revelation 9, they're going to be let out in the second half of the tribulation to work with the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and Satan himself, the dragon, to wreak havoc in this, the final stages as he tries to wrest control of the universe away from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, so, but then there are also those that are permanently imprisoned and will not be let out until the end of time when they are cast with the Satan himself into the everlasting fire where the beast and the false uh, prophet are. Uh, those that are permanently imprisoned are in a place called Tartarus. Uh, and I talked about this in my message from 2 Peter up at the Duluth conference. Uh, in 2 Peter 2, uh, God is, or the, Peter is talking about the judgment on false teachers and he uses several examples to show that God is fully capable of bringing punishment on, in this case, unbelieving false teachers. Um, and he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now that phrase, cast down to hell, is one verb in uh, Greek, and it's the, the verb tartarao, where we get the word tartarus. It means to cast into tartarus. Not the normal word for hell. It's talking about a specific uh, place. And then uh, Jude, a parallel passage in Jude. There are a lot of parallels between Second Peter and Jude. Refers to the same thing. Talking about those angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. Those he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So they're there permanently until the end. Uh, so if you go back to the chart here, <coughs> uh, Tartarus is the place where those angels in Genesis 6 uh, left their proper domain, cohabited with women, and ultimately that's what brought the flood, by the way. That's the, you know, when they started basically leaving their proper domain and trying to pollute the gene pool and create this hybrid race, God said, enough, and He destroyed the earth, all but the eight righteous that went on the ark with Noah. So uh, we've, we're out of time. I know that's a tough place to leave us with, hanging. But we'll, we'll start out next time talking more about uh, these angels who did not keep their proper domain. I want to go back to Jude and look at it a little more closely. And we'll see that it clearly is referring to that event, the sexual sins of those, uh, of those angels. And uh, so we'll, we'll leave it there. Any uh, questions or comments with what we've talked about so far? Before we quit, anybody? So we, yes. <clears throat> so the number of angels that are 
Oh, no, no, no. Good question, yeah. So the question is, uh, if the number of angels doesn't increase or decrease, what do we become when we uh, are raptured? So human beings are the highest pinnacle of creation made in the image of God. We will always be human beings. You, you, you can't change into a different class of created being. Only thing that changes in glory is that instead of being in our physical body with flesh and blood and blood vessels and you know bones, uh, we put on a glorified body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal will put on immortality, this corruption will put on this corruptible will put on incorruption. And we have to be glorified because, as he says in that same passage, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So we will still be human. Uh, we don't become angels. Uh, Hebrews contrasts humans and angels. Uh, Jesus Christ himself is uh, the second Adam and a human being. He is always human. He, didn't, he wasn't just human when he came to earth and then when he ascended back to heaven, he is no longer human. He's still human today. He has to be to be our sacrifice. I mean, to be our uh, uh, high priest, because every high priest is chosen among men. So he had to be uh, a human being. So no, we don't become angels. We um, we have glorified bodies, but we're going to be ruling and reigning, at least believers of the church age, in the kingdom, helping serve. Remember, Jesus told uh, the disciples they would rule and sit on twelve thrones with him. For example, Jesus told all believers of the church age, that if we're faithful while he's gone, awaiting the inauguration of the kingdom, when he returns, we will be put in charge of various levels of cities, Luke 19. Uh, so, yeah, good question, but no, definitely not, uh, not angels. <clears throat> Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so the question is, what will our appearance be like in the millennium since we will have our glorified bodies? And specifically, will we be glowing? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I'm going to be glowing with joy because I'm finally free from this sin-stricken world. But no, I know what you mean. It's, it's a tough question. We know that certainly we will be identifiable. Because Jesus and His glorified body was clearly identifiable, <clears throat> we will, you know, have the same identity. If you think back to where is it, Luke? Uh, anyway, rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16. Can't remember. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, he has, still has the same name. So you'll know me. I'll know you. We'll know each other. As to beyond that, it's difficult to speculate. If we're going to be serving a function within time, space, and matter on the earth during that thousand years on the old earth, it follows that whatever form we take on will be, you know, somewhat human. I don't think we're going to look like aliens, but then again, we are aliens and strangers in this earth, so who knows? Um, but that's not what we mean by aliens. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think we will have a, a human body because we are humans, but it will be a glorified human body, not a physical human body, be a perfect human body. So I've already put in, as you've heard me say before, I've already put in my request for six foot six inches, you know, zero body fat, just kind of the Michael Jordan model is what, what I'm hoping to be. But we'll see. We, we shall see. All right, well, let's uh, stop there. We left off, help me remember next time, we left off with the fifth 
trumpet judgment and the first woe, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that and then pick up from there next time. Uh, for those of you live streaming, we should be back on at around 1025 or 1030. Those of you here will kick off our service with the music portion at uh, 10 o'clock.